Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. We're two months into the Biden administration, and a big immigration bill just passed the House. Here's looking at you, Joe Manchin. If you're interested in supporting immigration reform, think about supporting the Political Action Committee Immigrants List. They're doing the political work that most of us advocate for on social media. Five cases this week from three circuits. I hope you all enjoy. First is Awuku Asari v. Garland, published by the Tenth Circuit on March 16th, 2021 going to start off with a bit of a unique case about maintaining lawful immigration status and F1 student status. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, it's another one, like the Burahanu case last week, where the non-citizen is represented by the University of Denver's immigration clinic. Get at it, guys. F1 student status is a type of non-immigrant status that is unique and that in most, if not all, instances, instead of requiring that a non-citizen depart the U.S. on a date certain, the non-immigrant status authorizes non-citizens to remain in the United States for, quote, duration of status, end quote, i.e., as long as they remain a student. Mr. Owuku Asari was one such student from Ghana, authorized to remain in the U.S. so long as he maintained a full course of study at an approved educational university. It appears that he maintained his student status from 2012 to 2017, but during the summer of 2017, he was arrested and imprisoned for 13 months, accused of rape. Here's the thing. He wasn't ultimately convicted. A jury acquitted him. But he nevertheless remained incarcerated for 13 months prior to and during the trial. And so during that time, Mr. Awuku Asari failed to maintain his student status. Following his acquittal, DHS placed him in removal proceedings and charged him as removable under INA Section 237A1CI as a non-citizen admitted to the United States 
hence the 237 charge, who failed to maintain his non-immigrant status. An immigration judge found him removable, and the BIA affirmed. Before the Tenth Circuit, Mr. Awuku Asari argued that yes, while he indeed stopped going to school because he was incarcerated, he shouldn't be deemed removable because the removal statute only makes, quote, a non-immigrant who has failed to maintain the non-immigrant status in which the non-citizen was admitted, end quote. This, Mr. Awuku Asari argued, meant that under the statute, a non-immigrant is only removable if the failure to maintain his status is attributable to the non-immigrant. Not so with Mr. Awuku Asari, and so, the argument goes, he is not removable. The Tenth Circuit disagreed. First, because the definition of the word fail includes, quote, to not succeed, end quote. The definition unambiguously does not require an affirmative act by the subject, but rather it merely describes an occurrence. This is in contrary to, say, INA Section 214M2, interpreted by the Tenth Circuit in Lee v. Mukasey. That statute concerns visas for study at private secondary schools and provides, in relevant part, that students violate the statute when they, quote, terminate or abandon such course of study at such a school, end quote. The Tenth Circuit held in Lee that there, a non-citizen only violates the statute if she affirmatively terminates or abandons her study. But that was because the statute required the affirmative acts of termination or abandonment. Not so with Section 237A1C's use of the word fail. The Tenth Circuit further rejected Mr. Awuku Asari's attempt to analogize to the in absentia removal statute which specifically has an exception for a non-citizen's failure to attend his hearing, where incarcerated. The Tenth Circuit flipped the argument on petitioners. The in absentia statute has an explicit exception. The failure to maintain removability statute does not. So, because Mr. Awuku Asari did not maintain a full course of study during his 13-month incarceration, he is removable. Just one more thing on non-immigrant student status. As Mr. Awuku Asari argued, and as the Tenth Circuit noted, absent removal proceedings, Mr. Awuku Asari may have been able to return to student status, because the regulations allow for a student to reinstate his status if the quote, violation of the status resulted from circumstances beyond the student's control. End quote. Good to remember if a non-immigrant student walks through your door, although ultimately no help in the removal context. And that is Awuku Asari v. Garland. Next is Cuesta Rojas v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on March 15, 2021. This is a case about adverse credibility. Mr. Cuesta Rojas is from Cuba and entered the United States without inspection in March 2019. Now, when such individuals from Cuba were apprehended in the past, ICE would often parole them into the United States, which would then allow them to adjust status under the special law for Cubans only, known as the Cuban Adjustment Act. But during the Trump administration, DHS stopped blanketly paroling Cubans into the U.S., and indeed did not grant parole in the majority of Cuban cases. 
And so, Mr. Cuesta Rojas found himself in expedited removal proceedings like all similar non-citizens, and he remained in immigration detention. Because he was in expedited removal proceedings and because he had a fear of returning to Cuba, he was given a credible fear interview by a DHS officer, which he passed, therefore placing him in full removal proceedings before an immigration judge. But again, because DHS had not given him a parole document, Mr. Cuesta Rojas could not apply to adjust status under the Cuban Adjustment Act, as Cubans like him, and only Cubans, have been eligible to do, after one year of parole, for decades. So in removal proceedings, he applied for asylum and he represented himself, and he testified about eight incidences of interrogation, detention, and assault by Cuban officials or individuals acting in concert with them, which he claimed occurred as a result of his anti-Castro political beliefs and his membership in the Cuban Independent and Democratic Party. He corroborated his claims with documents from Cuba. The IJ denied based on an adverse credibility finding, concluding that there were discrepancies between the sworn statement he made during his credible fear interview and his testimony, and that his corroborating evidence was insufficient. Mr. Cuesta Rojas appealed to the BIA pro se and submitted further corroboration, including, among other documents, hospital records from his beatings and a warning letter from Cuba's Ministry of Interior. The BIA affirmed the IJ. And it looks like the pro bono entity Pair Project and an affiliated attorney took the case on petition for review. The First Circuit reversed and remanded. To summarize its 22 pages of analysis, the First Circuit disagreed with the IJ's conclusion that there were, quote, significant discrepancies, end quote, between the sworn statement following the one hour credible fear interview and his multiple hours of pro se testimony in court. For one thing, as all immigration practitioners know, the sworn statement was actually only a summary of the officer's notes of the interview, rather than a verbatim transcript, and indeed, it expressly includes the following language, quote, There may be areas of the individual's claim that were not explored or documented for the purposes of this threshold screening, end quote. Pretty damning. Moreover, according to the First Circuit, there aren't really any discrepancies at all. Rather, and unsurprisingly to the First Circuit, the hours of testimony at the merits hearing properly, quote, adds detail, end quote, upon the DHS officer's summary of what Mr. Cuesta Rojas said during the one-hour credible fear interview. The First Circuit held that the IJ also erred in rejecting Mr. Cuesta Rojas's explanation for the perceived discrepancies. Mr. Cuesta Rojas testified that he told the officer the same things that he had testified to and the IJ did not identify any reason for disbelieving that explanation, particularly as the sworn statement, again, is merely a DHS officer's summary of testimony. And not only that, but Mr. Cuesta Rojas submitted corroborating evidence, and in the First Circuit, quote, if the applicant is found not to be entirely credible, corroborating evidence may be used to bolster an applicant's credibility, end quote. At the end of the day, and although the law allows an IJ to consider all perceived discrepancies as a whole, the First Circuit ruled that when adding up the perceived discrepancies, quote, zero plus zero equals zero, no matter the context in which the equation must be performed, end quote. 
Mr. Cuesta Rojas, therefore, gets another shot, this time with all of that additional corroborating evidence that he submitted to the BIA. Congratulations, Irene C. Friedel and the Pear Project. Two more things. Interesting factual holding. The First Circuit held that there was no inconsistency between the fact that the sworn statement reflected that Mr. Cuesta Rojas was arrested in Cuba, while his in-court testimony indicated that he was not formally arrested, but that he was rather simply detained. And that is because, realistically, Mr. Cuesta Rojas should not be expected to make any distinction, quote, between arrest and detention, each of which is a species of a seizure even under the Fourth Amendment, end quote. And this is particularly the case because the Department of State reports state that the Cuban regime often detains and harms individuals without making a formal arrest. Both DHS officers and clients sometimes play a bit fast and loose with the word arrest, so keep this case in mind if the issue comes up in your case. Also noteworthy, the lead attorney listed for the government in this case was Gene P. Hamilton. Mr. Hamilton was a close ally of Stephen Miller in the Trump White House, at least on immigration issues, and to my knowledge was in no way employed by oil. He was deposed at length during our firm's litigation of the TPS termination of Haiti in the Sajay v. Trump litigation. As the Honorable William F. Kunz noted in his 145-page decision granting plaintiffs a preliminary injunction, Even before then-DHS Secretary Kelly briefly extended TPS for Haiti, and certainly well before acting Secretary Duke terminated TPS for Haiti, Mr. Hamilton wrote an email to another U.S. government employee while employed as DHS Secretary Kelly's senior advisor, stating, quote, African countries are toast, Haiti is up next, end quote. Small world. And that is Cuesta Rojas v. Garland. Next is Thiel v. Garland, also published by the First Circuit on March 19, 2021. And this case is also about adverse credibility and identity. Mr. Thiel came to the United States from Australia with a visitor visa and an Indian passport in 2010. He applied for asylum a few months later, and in immigration court, DHS alleged that he was a citizen of India but Mr. Thao claimed that he was in fact a citizen of China, not India. He testified that he grew up in Tibet, which is occupied by China, and that due to his anti-Chinese pro-Tibetan political activities, he eventually fled for Nepal, and then India, where he lived for six years. He left India because of mistreatment there, but without any proof of identity, he claims he obtained a fraudulent Indian passport to leave that country for Australia. From there, he made his way to Boston, where he continued to participate in pro-Tibetan, anti-Chinese activities. What a world. In immigration court, he presented a bunch of evidence to corroborate all of this, including a letter from the Office of Tibet in New York, certifying that Mr. Thiel was a Tibetan refugee, and a photocopy of his Chinese household register certificate. But despite a two-year continuance, Mr. Thiel did not provide, and appears to perhaps have ignored, the IJ's demand that he obtain the original copy of his Chinese household register certificate to prove his Chinese citizenship. 
The IJ therefore held that Mr. Thile failed to meet his burden to establish his Chinese citizenship and denied asylum. The BIA affirmed. And the First Circuit affirmed too. Even though the IJ and the BIA did not make an adverse credibility finding against Mr. Thile. And that is because while some evidence showed that Mr. Thile was Chinese, other evidence, such as the passport and his six years of living in India, showed that he was Indian. Following the Real ID Act enacted in 2005, quote, an IJ can require corroboration even without making an adverse credibility determination, end quote. And that's what happened here. So Mr. Thal could not claim asylum from China. Not only that, the First Circuit held that even if he could, the firm resettlement bar would prevent him from obtaining asylum because he spent six years in India. As to Mr. Thal's alternative claim to asylum from India, the First Circuit affirmed denial of that too. It agreed that the record did not show that Tibetans are persecuted in India and that Mr. Thal's two-day detention in India following a Tibetan rally did not equate to persecution. So the First Circuit ruled against Mr. Thal. One more thought on corroboration. Mr. Thal may have had a better argument if he had attempted to explain why he could not obtain the original version of the Chinese household certificate, which quite frankly would not have been surprising, as he was allegedly fleeing persecution from that country, so it was probably difficult for him to bring the original certificate with him. As the First Circuit noted, it affirmed the IJ because, quote, the record contains conflicting evidence regarding petitioner's citizenship, and Mr. Thiel could not explain his lack of attempt to obtain further evidence to show his Chinese citizenship, end quote. Had Mr. Thiel explained, matter of lack and other cases would have required the IJ to determine the credibility and persuasiveness of that explanation, and may have won the day. And that is Thal V. Garland. Moving on, we have Aguilar Osario V. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on March 15, 2021. This is a very short case about a lot of things discussed very quickly. Judge Van Dyke dissented. And really, the majority opinion is so short that it barely touches on the facts. But the Ninth Circuit published it, so I shall review it. First, the Ninth Circuit rejected Mr. Aguilar Osario's argument that the immigration judge lacked jurisdiction over his removal proceedings based on deficiencies in the notice to appear, holding that such claims are foreclosed by the Ninth Circuit's decision in Karen Geethy v. Whitaker and Aguilar Ferman v. Barr. The court then held that it lacked jurisdiction to review whether the BIA properly decided that Mr. Aguilar Osario had failed to establish the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard required for non-LPR cancellation of removal. Then, the Ninth Circuit affirmed the BIA's denial of withholding of removal because the asserted particular social group of Honduran, quote, witnesses who could testify against gang members based upon what they witnessed, end quote, is not sufficiently particular or socially distinct. This is different than the group, quote, Salvadoran witnesses who did testify in open court against gang members, end quote, deemed cognizable in Henriquez Rivas v. Holder by the Ninth Circuit in 2013. 
However, the Ninth Circuit remanded for further Convention Against Torture analysis for the BIA's refusal to consider a Department of State country condition report on Honduras that the IJ had excluded due to a procedural violation on Mr. Aguilar Osario's part, but which the IJ had ended up considering anyway. Judge Van Dyke called the majority's remand, quote, lawless, end quote, and is clearly upset with how the Ninth Circuit adjudicates immigration cases. And that is Aguilar Osario v. Garland. Finally, we have Rodriguez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on March 15, 2021. This decision is about motions to reopen, and this time, the majority opinion is written by Judge Van Dyke. Mr. Rodriguez was ordered removed in 2003, and he was physically deported. In 2012, he was caught being smuggled back into the U.S. on a boat with his wife. He provided law enforcement with the identity of his smugglers, who were almost surely part of a violent drug cartel. His wife was even publicly identified as a witness against the smugglers in the criminal case. After this incident, Mr. Rodriguez's physical removal was deferred, and while in the U.S., he filed a motion to reopen with the immigration judge to reopen his 2003 removal order. As the basis, he alleged that he now qualified for asylum and related relief based on his wife and his cooperation against the smugglers, and the increased dangerousness of cartels in Mexico since the removal order's issuance in 2003. After some back and forth and up and down in the courts, the IJ eventually denied the motion to reopen, and the BIA affirmed. And so did the Ninth Circuit. It started off by quoting prior precedent, holding that to succeed on a changed country condition motion to reopen, a non-citizen must, quote, clear four hurdles. One, he must produce evidence that country conditions have changed. Two, the evidence must be material. Three, the evidence must not have been available previously. And four, the new evidence would establish prima facie eligibility for the relief sought, end quote. The Ninth Circuit held that Mr. Rodriguez had not met that standard here, holding that Mr. Rodriguez did not, as the rules require, present evidence of materially changed country conditions in Mexico. Rather, he submitted evidence of changes in his personal circumstances, namely, his having assisted law enforcement against suspected cartel members. And according to this Ninth Circuit panel, quote, a petitioner cannot succeed on such a motion that relies solely on a change in personal circumstances, end quote. Moreover, comparing the situation of cartels in Mexico in 2003 to conditions in 2016, when Mr. Rodriguez filed his motion to reopen, the Ninth Circuit affirmed that not much had changed. It was always pretty bad. Plus, Mr. Rodriguez's expert affidavit didn't really discuss changes. So the Ninth Circuit affirmed the BIA's denial of the motion to reopen. I've just got two more things before I let you go. The extent to which a change in personal circumstances can succeed on a motion to reopen is a bit all over the place among the circuits, and I believe that there's slightly more respondent-friendly case law even in the Ninth Circuit. For what it's worth, the Ninth Circuit here did recognize that a non-citizen's, quote, personal circumstances may act as a necessary predicate 
to the success of a motion to reopen where the new personal circumstances make the provided changed country conditions evidence relevant to the petitioner's changed personal circumstances, end quote. So personal circumstances can help, and they can help a lot. Under this decision, a non-citizen just must show sufficiently changed country conditions as well. And finally, I'll say this. To the extent it helps your case, the Ninth Circuit recognizes here that in Mexico, there was a, quote, 600% increase in the torture of prison detainees by police from 2003 to 2013, and a 266% increase in child abuse between 2006 and 2012, end quote. Horrifying and potentially helpful to asylum seekers. And that is Rodriguez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. And this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.